Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 1st, 2016, and this is episode 1721 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday, so this is a listener feedback show. It's also going to be kind of a catch-up with some things that have been going on in Jack's live show and just some other commentary that I have for you that I'm adding as variety toward the front end of the show Because there's a lot going on, and I think it's also time to kind of take a look at where we are. Because uh, we've just lost a month of 2016. One twelfth of the year, gone. More on that in a bit. Before we get into that and other subjects and your feedback for me, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is a ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators? Got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains, That's why they call them SawTac, and when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from SawTac, get into your MSB account, click on benefits, and look up SawTac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have anti-inoculation bomb throwers fizzle out. I have the modern Russian empire begins, and I have the popes are reforming the church slowly. Uh, I'm going to read that one, even though it's not really the one that I find the most interesting, I find what we can derive from it in Alex's take, the most interesting for modern day. But the other two are cool. You might want to take check them out at tspwiki.com. Pope Innocent XIII bans the practice of nepotism, that is, handing off cushy jobs or land grants to relatives. He also reduces spending. He will hold the office for a few years, and when he dies, he will be succeeded by a man a few words. The servant of God, Pope Benedict XIII, 
He will abolish the lottery in Rome and force a reduction in the lavish lifestyles in Rome. Benedict will also lift a ban on smoking. My take by Alex Shrug. The Pope's were doing something about the corruption within the church at that time. Of course, they would never have been elected if others in the church bureaucracy didn't want reform as well. We often complain about the guy at the top of an organization setting the tone, but ultimately he's only one man. A corrupt man lower in the organization will remain corrupt no matter how virtuous the top guy is. The church has been trying to reform itself since the Middle Ages, and it wrote out a list of issues during the Reformation. It seemed at the time that it, had fi it has finally convinced enough of its bureaucracy to implement that reform, mostly. Yeah, I also kind of take this as a different way. So we've been convinced that the politicians are the thieves in this, in this whole arrangement that we have right now that we call the United States of America. And most modern countries kind of feel the same way. All their politicians are thieves. But your fellow American or your fellow countryman, depending on where you're from, is the one that keeps sending them there, is the one that keeps returning them to office. Well, Jack, you say there's no good guy to vote for. Well, that's because nobody picks any good guys to vote for. This country's been bought and paid for just like the politicians have. Do you know the number one thing that determines whether or not a politician is going to win his run for elected office in America today? Well, first is a political party. That's the number one thing, to be completely honest about this before I rip into anybody, right? So if if you are a Democrat and you are a strong candidate and you've got a great campaign, you've got everything going on, but you're running in a, in a district for, let's say, the, the, the House, and that district has 85% Republicans in it, you ain't going to win. You ain't going to win, 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 right? It just isn't going to happen. And most districts today seldom flip-flop, except the House does, you know, whenever everybody gets pissed off. But you know what I'm saying. There are there are people who have been in office for, oh, God, 30 years. And they can't lose because they always win their nomination, and then they always win because a dog could run for Democrat in that district or in that state and win. Okay? So that's number one. But the number two, assuming the, the guy or the gal has a shot, how much money they have. Yep. How much money they That's why they're susceptible to being bought in the first place. I mean, you do understand that, like, when somebody's running for elected office and they're already in office and big tobacco or big food or big whoever is buying them off, they don't write them personal checks. They actually, if caught, would go to jail for that, both of them. No, they write checks that go into their contributions, their war chest, to run for office again. And we keep electing them. You can bitch all you want about the people running this country, But as long as the people of this country keep putting those people in charge, that means the people actually want things the way they are. They want things corrupt. Because what we have is the majority of people in this country, they don't really want freedom and liberty. They want to control everybody else in the way that they think is the right way to live. And it doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal, progressive or Democrat or blah, 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 blah. Every single stripe of the political spectrum in America today The vast majority want to tell others how to live, and that's why they sell themselves out to their elected officials. If you want to blame the guy at the top for everything, you got to look at how he got there and who put him there. I'm just saying. All right, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I got a, a lot of stuff for you, some really quick stuff, too. Uh, so I can cover a lot of different topics today, move a little faster than I usually do, where I go deep into four or five things on a feedback show. First one, I want to do a, two quick follow-ups to the, the Quail Show, which... Talk about something that wasn't short. Oh, my God, that was three hours of Q&A. Uh, that wore me out. I was, I was dead tired at the end of that one. You, you, you don't think it takes a lot of work to do a job like this. 
it, if you've never done it, you probably don't. But if you try it, you'll see going three hours on that much content will wear you down. But um, there were two questions that in that being worn down I just missed. And one was, can you brood quail with bantam chickens? So, like, if you have an aviary and your quails are laying eggs and all, can you toss a little a couple banty chickens in there? And banties are really... Uh, notorious for going broody, for you know sitting on eggs. And once she goes broody, just pop a bunch of quail eggs under her butt and let her take it from there instead of doing the incubation. The answer is you can, and it will work most of the time, but I've looked up a lot of people that have done it online, and here's what they say. Once she goes broody, if you give her the eggs, you get good hatch rates. If she stays there, you get good hatch rates. Definitely. Once they hatch, it's hit or miss on whether she's going to actually act like they're her babies. Like sometimes, you know, they just take care of them and, and brood them, and you don't have to do anything. And I'm interested in trying this in my aviary because with the three sections, it would seem like once she goes broody, I could put her in the section they're not going to be back to with only 18 days to hatch, and she would never be bothered by them. And if they did need to come back into her section, I could just move her and the babies to a separate section. And by the time they caught up, everything would be copacetic. So it's an interesting idea. But I've heard a lot of people say, I did it, they hatched, and then she just was like, don't care. So then you end up having, okay, she hatched, she's your incubator, but not your brooder. So it depends. All right, That's as much as I know on that right now. Anybody that's tried it and had it work, uh, one way or the other, had it fail, I'd love to hear from you in the comments today. The next one is, when you put them into a aviary or something like that, is there any way that you can condition them to lay their eggs in a spot? And the answer is, sort of. Um, one of the things I've noticed is I put a box, a small box full of sand for a dust bath in my quail cages until I get them in the aviary. And what I do is I move that box every day. So I put it out in the morning in one cage And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I go out and I make sure everybody's food and water and I move it to the next cage. And, you know, they get in there and they, they dust it up. So every three days with six cages, they're getting a dust bath. And I have found that if I go out in the evening to collect the eggs, whichever cage has the eggs uh, or has the, the, the box, there's eggs in the box. Not all of them, but some of them, which tells me there are certain environments they kind of feel like, yeah, I'd like to lay in there. Because the number of eggs laid in there, the, the percentage, is a lot higher than the percentage of floor space that's available. And I realize they could just be in there. and Because when they have to go, they, they go, right? But John Dowie has his quail in kind of an aviary setup, not a rotational one, but it's you know, a standard aviary. And he says they, they lay like 90% of their eggs. He's got these little houses for them that are basically rubber-made tubs with a hole cut in them. And there's like a little spot right there in between them because they've kind of made a little detention uh, dent in and they lay most of them in there so I'll have to wait and see but it seems like if you give them enough freedom of movement and choice that they will tend to maybe not lay in little laying boxes like maybe chickens or something but that they will kind of gravitate toward a certain area we'll see so that's what I can do on that next up on the quail aviary I've made amazing progress with it I've put it in It's now, uh, the structure itself is 48 feet long, uh, 50 feet a cattle panel that extends a foot out of each side of the, the wood base. Uh, I've got all of it up, all of it erected, all of it squared away, and I've got the one side end, I've got the, 
the framing for the door and all installed, and I'll be working on the, continuing that through the rest of the week. It looks like, i got to check a couple things today, but it looks like this Saturday I'm going to run a Work With Jack weekend for folks that are kind of local to the area or whatever want to come hang out. We're going to be putting on the hardware cloth, and that's the question. Can I get that much hardware cloth at a price that's not stupid by next week and maybe some more uh, lumber and stuff in as well? Because I've got all the hardware for uh, the hinges for the doors and all, and I need to make sure i got enough lumber to frame everything, but I could probably pick that up. And what we're going to be doing is putting the hardware cloth on the aviary, at least that much is what we would do. Hang out, have some food. I'll probably do what I always do with these. I charge like 15 bucks, and that way I can feed you guys and give you some good beer and stuff like that. Uh, maybe pick up some good ciders or something this time. I might have a little bit of mead to share, but I don't have a lot of it that's finished. i got tons of it going, but not a lot that's finished. Um, if I can get a hold... It probably won't carb, though. I've got a five-gallon batch of awesome cider uh, that I'd like to get into the uh, the keyser, but my CO2 tank's out. And to get it to really carb right, I, I like to do cider at, like, 15 pounds. I like to go for two weeks, so I don't know that we'll have that. Hustle still cider you guys can try, though. Anyway, uh, so that'll be coming up. If you want to come to that, um, don't do anything just yet. Watch the site tomorrow either on the show or on the blog itself, I'll put out a thing that says yes or no, whether we're doing it or not. And if we're doing it, there'll be a little form to fill out to reserve your spot. You don't have to pay until you get here. And uh, that's that. So if you want to come do that, that's cool. I put out a video today. It's not on the site yet. I'll put it on the site later uh, of my progress on the Quail Aviary. But there, I have a short link to the playlist where you can see the whole progress as it continues to go on. And it's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, slash quail, slash AIV. So you can go see that playlist if you want. So it's bit.ly, so bit.ly slash quail dash AIV for aviary. Uh, just a little short link there that you can uh, check out if you want to and see it right away. Um, next up on YouTube, I do have a new series. I haven't made a short link for it yet, but it's called Meads of the Week. I've only done two episodes, really one true episode and one kind of like a pilot. So the pilot was actually me making a methylogen, which is an herbed mead. And that's, that's been up for a couple weeks now. And uh, then last week I did uh, an episode where I talked about several different meads that I've, I've made in that last week. And I said that I would be doing an orange, blo an orange blossom honey mead. And uh, so I've got that, one of those already made, a little bit different. I'll be making a different version of it. And I'll probably put that out this evening or tomorrow, uh, this week's Meat of the Week. So you might want to check that series out, too. I think that'll be fun. I'm not going to do a lot of making mead in the videos. I'm just going to have the meads I've made talk about them. I might do some things like racking and stuff like that. But what it'll be like is it like a, a, a 8 to 15-minute mini podcast on mead, except it'll be on YouTube. Because I'm probably not going to throw it into a podcast feed or anything like that. I don't... I don't have time to do that. With with the videos, I've got this little thing. It's like they're like thirteen bucks, twelve bucks, something like that. I got it on Amazon. I'll put a link to it today because it's pretty cool. Uh, it's a little mount sits on a tripod. So you take your your camera and it's kind of universal for Android or iPhone. You lift it up and the tension holds it. So now you got your camera on a tripod and it comes with a little Bluetooth remote and you set it to the camera and you push it and it activates the camera if it's on still it does a still if it's on a video it does a video and yeah it was like 11 bucks 13 bucks something like that you know put a link today for it but i almost didn't buy it because i was like it can't work if it's that cheap but since it's that cheap i'll give it a shot anyway you can return things on amazon works great so with that as soon as i'm done i just grab the phone go upload youtube give it a title bam 
and I don't touch it, and it's unedited. And with that, I can turn out videos like that, much like I do Duck Chronicles. Ah, Duck Chronicles! New episode of Duck Chronicles came out today, episode 13, season 2. Uh, update on the Muscovies and a bunch of other stuff, and a little bit of a look at the Quail Aviary. All right, with that knocked out, um, let's get into some actual feedback. I, I wanted to share this email with you. This was a personal email to me, and I'm going to call the guy Tom, okay? Because I got permission to use this email, but it was important to the person that sent it to me that I didn't use his real name. And I want to talk about this as it relates to our dependence and our on, on prescription meds in this, this country and our trusting of doctors that is beyond the level that I think is healthy for a society. I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. But I want to read this. Uh, so, so Tom says, uh, I, it says, you were largely right for Jack. Jack, I won't go into the details as they're not important, but we recently uncovered that one of the pain medications I was on, Lyrica, was severely altering my memory and my actual state of reality. I went back and reviewed many communications with various individuals. All I can say is, wow, it was rough. Yes, there was much in my previous communications with you that was regrettable. Uh, you were more patient than I would have likely been had the roles been reversed. I don't need a response, not a stalker, nor seeking any deep friendship, nothing like that. I have my hands full co-running two businesses. I just appreciate what you do and apologize for my situation and wasted time from your busy schedule. Keep up the great work. In conclusion, on a positive note, they finally did uncover why I've been in such agony for these past three years. Uh, the surgeon actually punctured my L5 sciatic nerve canal. It appears he may have partially severed the nerve. It won't be immediate, but at least we are just days away from first steps at a true solution. So I'll just say, yeah, there was some weird comps between me and Tom here. And to the point where I told him, hey, you know what? Don't, don't, don't call me. Don't, don't do, don't email me. I don't want to hear from you. And I was like, this guy's batty on, on some levels. And, uh, I'm glad you can see that now. And clearly it was a medication issue, but then there's two issues here. So he had a surgery, the surgeon botched the surgery. He had a surgery and goes to a doctor after the surgery in pain, and the doctor doesn't immediately check to see if maybe it was because the surgery was botched. The doctor prescribes a medication that alters the person's state of mind to where they do some stuff that is, I'm just going to be blunt and say, a little bit batshit crazy. This goes on for quite a while if he's just finding out about this now, Okay. Quite a while. I'm sure there were more follow-up visits to his doctor. And why does a person taking a medication who begins to behave this way, either they or the people around them don't think, hey, maybe it's that medicine. And it's because we trust medicine. And I'm saying as a profession, as a thing, as an industry, far too much in this country. And we need to not trust it as much as we do. Now, I get accused all the time when I talk about this by some people that have, well, in some cases I think they're just brainwashed. some cases I think they mean well. And there's a few of you out there that just have your head up the ass of the medical industry. You believe whatever you're told because they wear white coats or whatever. I think some of you are wannabe doctors or what have you. But I get told all the time that, like, you know, you, you, I'm some kind of a, uh, a primitivist or I believe in all these batshit crazy alternative cures over real medicine or what have you. And, and nothing can be further from the truth. First of all, I would point out that I have an MD, an actual MD, 
on the expert council as part of the expert council. And he is married to a, 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 a physician's assistant. So, uh, so, you know, that's like almost a doctor too. And, and she's free to answer the questions whenever she wants. So I have an MD on staff. So if I didn't value modern medicine at all, I wouldn't have an MD on staff. All right. Um, and I'm probably going to get my head handed to me by Amy because she's not a physician's assistant. She's a, uh, She is an ARNP, which is an Advanced Registered Nurse Practitioner. So I have a nurse practitioner and an MD on staff. So clearly, I don't like say, uh, I don't really need to have any modern medicine anywhere in the world, and I think it's all bumpkiss. No, not at all. I, I've said many times, if I get hit with a yield sign in my spleen, please take me to a surgeon. There are certain medical conditions. If I notice a problem, I would seek the advice and counsel of a physician. Uh, there are certain things that if they went wrong, surgery might be an option. It might be a risk reward where you have to make a determination. But there's times when surgery saves people's lives. Uh, I just had someone here at the farm not too long ago out of work with Jack Weekend who said flat out like a doctor saved his life. And he was one of the only doctors willing to do the surgery because it was so risky. Yet if no one did the surgery, the man would have died. And it you know changed his life because you face death. Man. Kudos to doctors like that. There's a doctor who, you know, I, I owe my wife's happiness to, uh, named Dr. White, who did her surgery for trigeminal neuralgia, and I believe saved her life because I believed, I, I believe firmly that eventually she would have either had a heart attack or she would have killed herself because of the pain that condition causes. And we had gone to a point where there's no other choice but surgery, and we avoided surgery until there was a point where, like, you have to do this. And uh, it was a very serious surgery. Uh, you're talking about a hole in the back of a person's head the size of a 50-cent piece and moving their brain stem to the side to access a nerve and cauterizing a nerve off of the trigeminal nerve. So, like, a doctor needs to be the one that does that. My problem with America today is we trust doctors to hand down diagnoses when there's no way they possibly have done anything that would be relevant to a diagnosis. I, I, I've been to the doctor for certain things and had doctors walk in the uh, the exam room almost backwards, you know, kind of back in and uh, here, take this prescription and get on out of here. I mean, I have to tell you that my experience has been that I got better care from military doctors and military medical personnel than I have from many doctors in the private practice. Um, and they are really moving people through because they have to. And we have just gotten to a point where we, we fear questioning medical professionals. And I, I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous to get to a point where anybody fears questioning anybody. I hear it all the time, too, with the climate thing and scientists. Like, because a guy puts a white coat on or has a degree, uh, and you don't, you have no right to question what they think or what they say. That's stupidity. I mean, anybody that really believes that, my dad had a saying, You talk like a man with a paper asshole. And anybody with that assertion that just because somebody has a credential, they can't be questioned by somebody who doesn't have a credential, and at times that person without the credential might be right, is, is, is flatly the wrong. My wife's had medical issues where I've said, this is what's wrong with you. She goes to the doctor four times before the doctor goes, that's what's wrong with you. And gee, This redneck duck farmer knew immediately why. I know my wife better than a doctor does. I don't know medicine better than a doctor, but I know my wife. I know doctors don't effing listen. When my wife had the initial problems with trigeminal neuralgia, we went to different neurologists, and we got to one that went on a witch hunt for MS. 
And he was bringing in these other symptoms that she had, like slurred speech and uh, awkward gait with walking and all. And this is because she was on massive loads of Tegretol and Neurotin at the same time to prevent the pain. From, see, trademinal neuralgia. You, you see, you want to become an expert in a disease? Have it or, or love someone that deals with it. And you know more than most doctors do about it. But, but trigeminal neuralgia cannot be treated with pain medication. It has to be treated with things like anti-seizure medications and neural inhibitors. Because when, you're, when you have a nerve misfiring, you can be on morphine and it still hurts. And you can't walk around on morphine all the time. So what you do is you inhibit the, neural, the nerve's ability to fire. So all of these additional symptoms she has, I'm telling this guy in an exam room, hey, guess what? None of these symptoms existed before she was on this medication. And he says, well, it's a progressive disease. Oh, hold on, hold on. And, and none of these, these really existed until the condition became worse and we increased the dosage. Well, these aren't all side effects of the drugs. I'm like, these are all side effects of the drugs. So I pull out two pieces of paper that I printed out from the, the manufacturer of the drugs websites and said all of these are side effects of these. Every side effect is, is associated with both of these medications, all of them. And he says, well, look at the percentages. They're 1% to 2%. I'm like, well, how about that's the percentages of being used for their normal applications. And this is what happens when you use both of them at the same time in larger than normal dosages because you're treating a condition they were never intended to treat. And he asked me if I thought I was a doctor. Well, the arrogant ass was wrong. And my wife went through a lumbar puncture to rule out MS because I wasn't enough of an asshole to push back on it. And she wanted to rule it out, too. So I respected my wife's wishes. But that's just one example. Like, what right do you have to question a doctor? Well, he's flipping wrong. Flipping wrong. Absolutely flipping wrong and not listening. You might as well take two big carrots and shove them in his ears till he hit the eardrums. Because he never heard a word I said because he was so convinced he was right. And he was offended that anybody would ever question him. Question your doctor. Stop asking your doctor to tell you about a drug and start questioning treatments. I have a good friend. Well, I, my wife has a good friend, more accurately, who has a child that was on a certain medication. This certain medication has a side effect that can cause certain deficiencies uh, of, in nutrition. So they test for it. So then the deficiency shows up, and what does the doctor want to do? He wants to send him to a specialist and evaluate, is it really the drug that's causing the deficiency? How about we stop giving the drugs, since it's not a life-saving drug, and monitor and see if the deficiency goes away? No, he doesn't want to do that. I told my wife, you tell her to tell him to shut his ass up, and, and I would take my kid off that medication. By the way, it's a behavioral modification medication, right? Because right? that's what kids need, to have their behavior modified. Like, we need to stop this willful going along. And that, and that includes everything. Yes, that includes the dreaded anti-vaxxer vaccines, right? Okay, listen, again, I don't get people. I don't get people on the vaccine. You're anti-science, anti-vaxxer. I believe in vaccinations. What flipping part of that's hard to understand? But I don't need, we think we need to shock the immune system of a child under six months of age with as much crap as we put in their systems. I don't. Okay? I just don't. And I don't think we need to give people vaccines under six months of age for freaking hepatitis B. I think that's nothing but money for the drug manufacturers. And the bullshit about, well, we don't make that much money on vaccines. It's only a few billion dollars. Hey, you know what? If you feel that way, I got a plan. Right? If, if Pfizer and Merck and all think it's only a few billion dollars. How about this? How about all you assholes? How about all you assholes that say that in, in the drug companies? How about each one of you? There's like 
There's like 10 major drug companies. How about each one of you take $4 billion, all right, and just give it the F away to the public every year. If it's not that much money, it doesn't really matter. Because you're full of shit. Of course it does. Does anybody out there think that $4 billion isn't that much money? Yeah. I didn't think so. So my upshot with this one is every medication, every medication, and those of you that say it's not true, you don't know anything about medication. Every medication is a poison. Every medication is a poison. Aspirin is a poison. Eat a bottle, you'll hemorrhage and bleed to death internally. It's a poison. They are poisons when used properly that have applications for the treatment of disease and illness. Some of them mitigate symptoms, some of them save lives, but they are all poisons. Before you put a poison into your body, you should have a full understanding of what that poison is, what that poison does, what that poison can, can do to help you, what the risks associated with that poison are, and how to monitor yourself so that you begin to see things that make it look like it's causing you a problem that you can get off it. You also have a right to know the following. If you put me on this, how hard is it to ever take me off of it? Because there are medications being given to people today willy-nilly like they're freaking M&Ms, and the person's on it for six months, and then they're like, do I need to keep taking this? Oh, you're going to take this for the rest of your life. Like the doctor that tried to put my wife on blood pressure medication a couple years ago, because it was a little bit high, and her eyes showed symptoms of high blood pressure, because she had a condition called trigeminal neuralgia that put her in an irretractable pain, and she had to be in an ER for two days on morphine before they could do the surgery. You think that might cause a little bit of high blood pressure? Just saying. Just saying. But that doctor didn't want to listen either. But my, I told my wife, I said, do you think you're going to die in two weeks? No, go get a blood pressure cuff. Monitor your blood pressure for two weeks. Take the results back to your doctor. You take the results back to your doctor. Doctor looks at him and goes, huh, yeah, there's no need for you to be on blood pressure medication. Oh, really? Oh, really? But two weeks ago, you're pressuring her. Question your doctor. And anybody that tells you not to question a doctor, don't listen to them about jack diddly shit. Because they don't know jack diddly shit about shit. Right? There's, there, there's several types of people in the world. There's people that know shit. There's people that talk shit. There's people that do shit. And there's people that don't know shit about shit. When somebody tells you not to question somebody just because of their authority or just because of their credential, they're the last kind. They don't know shit about shit. Let's take another one. To get my blood pressure back down, let's take something a little bit different here. Um, this is from John. John says, which air pistol or 22 pistol would you recommend for taking out rodents in the garden? The details, my gardens got decimated last year by chipmunks, mice, moles, etc. last summer. Since my dog died, the rodents have exploded on my property. I'm thinking of carrying an air pistol when I'm out there. Maybe just getting a 22 pistol would be better. I have a few 22 rifles, but having a pistol on my hip would be more convenient when chipmunk appears out of nowhere. Thanks, John. All right, I'm going to answer that question exactly the way that it was, was given but I'm going to tell you that there's probably a better answer. And it's not, let's all contemplate our navel and realize that chipmunks' lives matter and not kill the chipmunks. It's probably killing the chipmunks and the, the voles and stuff with rat traps. Uh, which, if you have no dog, and if you don't have, now, if you have a cat, this could be dangerous, right? So, assuming you have no cats in your backyard, no dogs in your backyard, no little kids that mess with things they're not supposed to, uh, a rat trap and peanut butter 
really, really effective at getting this done. Another option is the drowned them to death with Blackwell Sunflower option. What we do is we get ourselves a, a five-gallon bucket, and we set it right out in the middle of the garden. We fill it halfway with water, and we put about an inch layer of Blackwell Sunflower seeds on the top of it. We put a nice little chipmunk ramp on the side of that barrel, and a chipmunk runs up there, looks in there, oh, look at all those little things, and he jumps and he drowns. Uh, it works on mice and other things as well. So these methods would probably be more effective at population control, or I mentioned a cat, if you're open to the idea of a cat, get a kitten, train it, teach it, teach it the ways of the force, and it will kind of hang around and do a really good job of controlling these, these things. I know there's a lot of people get upset about that, but you can be upset about that, and you can go make your case, and I've made my case, and I'm done with the whole outside cat debate. Um, that said, I believe that cats in an outside environment work best when you have at least a few acres. Because that is big enough property for that cat to kind of feel like I have a territory. Where if you take a cat and it's outside in suburbia, I'm not saying not to do it, I'm just saying it doesn't work that way. I mean, they're in everybody's yard. That you know, Some places people are okay with it, some places they're not. Okay, so you you got to balance that one. Now, back to uh, controlling them by shooting them. You could use any, any air pistol will kill a chipmunk dead. At whatever range you're capable of hitting it. Probably the biggest limitation is a lot of the better air pistols are fairly large. Um, like, you know, Crossman makes a revolver like the Dan Weston style. Man, that thing's awesome. You, you load, it's got the speed clips, you load them with pellets, it's powerful, it's accurate, but it's pretty big. I mean, you're carrying, you, you could go out there with a black powder, you know, buffalo uh, pistol on your side and have about the same size. Probably one of the better compact pistols that's not really expensive um, is the uh, Gamo Airguns PT-80. It has about a 400 foot per second velocity. Uh, it's a really good little gun. I don't own one, but I've shot one, and they're accurate, uh, and they, they do really well. Like most of them, they use CO2. So it's a little CO2 cartridges, and you put them into the, the and you, you know, turn the screw, and it breaks a little seal, and it charges them up. And I guess the, the biggest problem that I have with them is they, over time, can leak. And it really is not a best practice to leave an air pistol with a CO2 cartridge pressurized against it long term. At It's an $80 gun, though, right? Okay, so maybe it's like you, you put your cartridge in it, you carry it around, and, and once a week you take target practice. So you're not putting one in it every day. And after you do that, give it a little bit of a lube and all, and it'll probably be fine. PT-80 will fit most standard kind of small frame pistol uh, uh Holster is probably more like a mid-frame pistol holster, so you can find plenty of holsters for it. And I'm not saying to get that one; I'm just saying like that, like look at that, and that's kind of the size I'd recommend. But don't underestimate how hard it is to hit a chipmunk with a pistol, right? So I I don't know if these little guys are like popping up in front of you like 20 feet away or less. You probably wouldn't have a problem, but you know if they're if you think you're going to be popping chipmunks at 30 yards with a pistol, if you are, you're a better shot than me, and you're a better shot than the accuracy of most of these pistols. Right now, if you're going to go with a 22, um, you know, I kind of think everybody should have a nice revolver, at least one nice revolver. And um, the uh, Ruger single six is a single action 22 uh, revolver. And it's it's awesome. It's awesome. And you can get it with a cylinder. You can swap out and shoot 22 or 22 Magnum in it. So that's kind of cool, too. Uh, it's not expensive. Now, um, Heritage. I think is the company that makes it's pretty much a clone, and I think it's 
a lot. I think it's like 150 bucks, brand new. I kind of in my head somewhere remember seeing that gun at like a, a store we have around here called Academy Sports and Outdoors, and I think it was like 149 bucks. It was sub 200 anyway, and I almost went, yeah, what? I could use one. I almost bought it like and just you know put it in the box and set it in the gun safe and said, hey, I got one of those now. I didn't do it, but I kind of think when I was talking right now, like it wouldn't be bad to have one. So that would be a great handgun for this purpose. Assuming these little things are popping up like, you know, 10, 15 feet away, um, 22 rat shot in that thing would do the job. You don't have to worry about slugs deflecting or going into the neighbors or something like that. But that's kind of the, the, the maximum range. And that's why I like the revolver for this, that little bit longer of a barrel, the, uh, the CCI ones with a little gel cap on them. Those pattern really well out to about 10, 15 feet. And they'll smack a chipmunk dead, uh, definitely. So if you wanted to avoid the slug issue, you could possibly try that. Honestly, it would just be a loud issue. What would work better if you wanted to use dust shot would be like a 38 revolver. Uh, a 38 revolver will probably about 10 yards, 30 feet, uh, knock the snot out of a chipmunk, especially one with a little bit longer barrel. You're kind of moving up in cost there and all, but if you were going to go with a you know dust shot, rat shot type uh, thing, they do make those shot shells for that. Uh, I had a guy email me one time that says he hand loads his own uh, dust shot, basically, uh, but he loads them with, I think, eights in forty four Magnum, and he knocks spruce grouse down with them uh, at, like, you know, I think it was like 15 yards, he was saying, so... You can kind of take that from there. But if you're asking 22 and whatever, you probably have concerns about noise and what have you. So trapping, uh, air gun, something along the lines of the PT-80 Gamo. Uh, again, an $80 gun. You'd enjoy using it anyway. Um, and then 22, I would, I would look at revolvers. Uh, dead simple, very safe. Uh, the single six, the right way to carry a single shot, single action revolver, really as you load five of the cylinders, you carry it hammer down on an empty cylinder. I mean, you you got to mess something up bad for that to have an accidental discharge. Really, really bad. So it's safe. It's flexible. It would give you the cylinder swap-out capability uh, to 22 Magnum. It would be something that you'll have forever. Um, and you would pass down to kids and grandkids, et cetera. So um, I kind of wish I had my grandfather's. My grandfather had one. I don't even know how old it is now. It belongs to one of my uncle's. Uh, my hope is that if he passes away before me, because he's not that much older than me, uh, that gets handed down to me. It's pretty much the only thing out of that whole world that I'd like to have. Um, and you could start that now for someone else. So I like that even if you don't use it to shoot squirrels or chipmunks. Uh, next up, let's put a kick in you a little bit here, guys. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock is ticking on. Uh, do you realize that today is February 1st? Does that make sense to you? That, like... It was just not that long ago we were getting ready for like Halloween and Christmas and Thanksgiving, and now it's 2016, 2016. Um, and now a twelfth of that is gone. I got good news for you, though. I got good news for you. This is a leap year. There's there's 29 days in February this year. You get an extra day this year. So what are you going to do with it? Consider it that it's today, then. I mean, I mean, technically it's the 29th of February that's the extra day, but consider that it was today, and this was your extra day. Your extra day in life. Like, you were told you're going to die on this date in the future, and then somebody says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an extra day. What would you do with it? 
Just a little bit to put it in perspective. Remember, I teach self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty and critical thinking here. Um, this is the survival podcast, and I believe survival is about adaptation to your environment, making the most of it, thriving when others, when others fall down. See, if you can survive when others die, then you should be able to thrive when others are weak. And when, other, when, when the general population is doing well, you should be astronomical with success if you're actually designing your life the right way. And that means that we have to be taking incremental steps on a daily basis toward better things for ourselves, better things for our family, better things for our community. And life is a bitch, guys. You've heard that statement before. Let me tell you what kind of bitch life is. Life is a bitch because she smacks you backwards if you don't plow forwards. That, that's the real reason that life is actually a bitch. This is why life pushes people around a lot of times. Because it's not so much the person is not is doing improper things or doing things wrong or, or t because this is what a lot of people say in life especially as they get older and they realize like I never really got that stupid with debt you know I've got some debt but it's not astronomical I, I, I went to school I got good grades I never got in trouble with the law I didn't drink too much I didn't do drugs I didn't run with the wrong crowd I always pay my bills on time I did the best that I could and I really can't see anything that I did wrong But yet, I don't feel successful, I don't feel happy, and I feel trapped. And, and, I, and I actually think my life is a mess. And not just mentally, but like, I, I, I can't really afford to live any better than I do now. And I'm not happy with my level of success in life. I, I can't find a promotion to save my life. My, I'm, not, I'm not being the father or mother that I felt. I mean, I, I hear people like that all the time. And it's not what you did wrong many times. It's what you didn't do to go ahead. Because here's what happens. Every day comes, and there's so much we could do with it. And we need to be like Walter Payton. I'll use a sports metaphor for you here. Um, one time Walter Payton was asked, what was his secret to, by the end of his career having so many yards? You know, What was the one thing that made him so successful. And he said, I always closed. I always closed. And what he meant by that was, I'm going to get tackled. I'm going down. But I'll get an inch. I'll get a foot. I'll get a yard more. Whatever it is I can get on this run, I will take as much of it as I possibly can. I won't be a fatalist and say, since I'm, since I'm going down anyway, since they've got me anyway, I'm going down, I'll still keep fighting. I'll still go for it. I won't say, you know what, I've got the first down. What's another yard going to be? What's another yard going to be when you play 16 games a year for a whole career? And you have 20, 30, 40 carries a game. What's it going to be? All right. What is the difference today? If you just spend 10 more minutes working on being a better father or a mother or advancing your business or your career or improving your knowledge, what's 10 minutes? It doesn't seem like a lot. Can we do a little math? Can we do a little math and see what this is over a lifetime? Well, it's 3,650 minutes in a year. Okay? 3,650 minutes in a year. It doesn't take a genius to multiply something by 10. That's 60 hours a year, though. 60 hours and some change. 60.3 or something like that. But let's just round it off to 60. Over 50 years. 
let's say you, you, you make this decision as a young person at 20, that I'll always spend at least 10 extra minutes, always close every day by doing something to improve my odds, my chances, my education, my standing, my ability to father or, or mother or be a brother or whatever, be a friend. I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll commit that I will make sure I close with at least 10 minutes extra every day. So see, it's not all about work then, right? Because some days that extra 10 minutes is applied in a way that says, I'm going to put a little bit extra work into this relationship, or I'm going to go and I'm actually going to put it into this hobby, but into skill development within this hobby, and you're going to spread it out over time. And if we do that for 50 years, it's 3,000 hours. 3,000 hours. 125 days. It's 125 days. Now, I know a lot of you are going, that doesn't seem like that. Hold on. I want you to think about this. What if I gave you 125 days of hours? Okay? Now, I want you to think about what that really means. You're going to sleep and, you know, use, do, do bodily functions and everything else. Really, we, we, if we look at that as, let's say that is a 12-hour workday. Like, because this is not just about work, right? This is about all these things in your life. So there's 12 hours, half of a day between sleep and, and brushing your teeth and eating dinner and, and all those other things, and 12 hours that are actually available to be engaged and active. So then I would have to give you, um, what is it, 250 days. 250 days of actual daylight time to be engaged and do things. So I give you those 250 days, and I, and I say, here's what I'm going to do. Over the next 250 days... You're not going to have anything in your life getting away. Your job will be there when you get back, right? But you don't have to do your job. Your family will be there when you get back, but you only, you know, involve your family in this as much as you want to. Your, your bills will be paid. You'll have nothing to worry about. You can do anything you want. And you pick two or three things to become great at. And you spend 250 days of your life in a row doing them. How, how much could you get done? How much could you get done? Okay, you can give yourself those 250 days by closing with that 10%, or that 10, that 10 minutes. Imagine if you put 30 minutes in it, what that would be, three times that, years. Add it on to what you're doing. See, understand this, add it on to what you're doing anyway. Now, here's where I want to, like, kick you a little bit with it. You're not getting that if you do it. You're failing to have it if you don't. It's there. The opportunity's there. It's available to you. It's yours. You already have it. It's already been given to you that there's 24 hours in a day. You're alive. You can still fog a mirror. You can do something. If you don't take advantage of it, you've squandered it. Think about that. Let let that burn in a little bit and start asking yourself, when you see people in life, you're like, man, I wish that guy had luck or that guy had the skills or the opportunities I didn't or whatever. Did they just close a little harder than you did every single day? What's the cumulative effect of that? We, You know, financial liars tell us about the compounding effects of interest. What are the compounding effects of kicking ass? Striving. Working really hard at things that are actually important in your life. So you notice in all of this, I didn't say what you should do with this time. Just that you should do. Because here's the truth. I don't know what you should do 
But I do know that you should do. I know that if you don't, somebody else will for you. And you won't find what you want. And you will end up being the person who's 50 or 60. Many times a person's 45 to 55 in that midlife crisis going, Holy shit! How did I get to this point in my life and I, I just still don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing? Close. Close hard every day. Pick one more thing I'm going to do, I'm going to learn, I'm going to develop. Work on something. Become good at it. I don't care if it's playing a guitar. It's not like I'm talking about being miserable here. Become multi-tasked, multi, multi-talented. I'm not talented. Yes, you are. Every single one of you are talented. Now, you might not be talented as a speaker or as a singer. I'm a pretty good speaker. I'm a lousy singer. If I sung, you'd see how bad I sucked. Okay, see? I'm willing to look stupid. I don't care to make a point. All right? I can't sing. I can't carry a tune in a bucket with it taped to my ass. Right? I really can't. But that doesn't mean I don't have talents. So whatever you think about yourself, you are talented somewhere. I've had people tell me, I'm not talented at anything. And one day you look down and they have a sketch pad. And they're just scribbling and they're like, oh, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's nothing. I could take 47 art classes. I couldn't do that. What if you actually worked on that? What if you made it something? You know? Well, I don't know that there's any future in this. Well, because there's not art shows where people spend millions of dollars on shit. Right? And that doesn't mean you're going to become like a, a, the next Rembrandt or something. Or the starving artist that gets discovered someday. But there's people that just take that little talent and put $20,000 a year in their pocket with it. Or $10,000 a year. And they have a regular job or a different business. $10,000 a year for 10 years. $100,000 that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Might feel a little better if you had an extra $100,000 in your pocket right now. Doesn't matter what it is. There's always a way. There's always a way to do it. Always a way. And I want to talk about like a stupid easy way to put a little bit of money in your pocket next. I mean, I can't believe how simple this is. Um, grew Jerusalem artichoke in my backyard garden for fun this year. Grew like crazy and produced more than I'll ever eat. Took it to the local farmer's market to sell on consignment. Selling like, high, selling like hot cakes at $8 a pound. I'm a farmer now, I guess. Uh, I responded and just said, that's badass. Uh, he responds back to me like an hour later. Sold out in an hour. 60 bucks to the emergency fund. But Jack, that's only $60. Okay, let's, let's, let's examine this a little bit, shall we? This guy had a garden anyway. Never grew these Jerusalem artichoke things before. Takes a couple tubers that you can buy for a few bucks. Cuts them in some pieces and throws them into a bed. The end of the season, because I know how this is, I've done it, the plants die back. And you're like, oh, let's see what I got. And you pull it out. It's like, holy shit. And you get a five, couple five-gallon buckets full of them. And you go, I'm not going to use all these. So what do most people do? Most people think, well, I'll figure out how to use them. You store them. They go back in the refrigerator sooner or later, start sprouting, gives them away, whatever. How do I know I did it, right? This guy says, I wonder if anybody else wants some of these. Who goes down to the farmer market, finds somebody to put them on consignment with and say, hey, How about you sell these for me and we split the money? So they do, and he gets 60 bucks. Is that worth 60 bucks? Plus he got the ones he kept that he would have paid eight dollars a piece for if he eight dollars a pound for if he would have bought them. Now the, I'm, I'm just I'm spitballing here. I'm spitballing here, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking that if it's that easy and that fast, maybe this guy doesn't become a Jerusalem artichoke farmer, but with a few beds, he could make a thousand dollars a year. Without doing very much work, extra, a grand, 
That'd pay most people's car insurance. How'd you like to make your car insurance payment go away? You see how this works. And what if that person figures out a few other things to do like that? You know, maybe you make two grand a year. I don't know. They do store rather well for, for a time. You can actually harvest them as you need them. If you just keep them mulched, they can stay in the ground. So you can start your harvest in like November and keep pulling them out until you're out for the year. I'm just saying. So maybe a few other things and maybe this guy finds his 10 grand. I mean, think, think about that. Think about how actually easy it is for people who just close with that 10% to figure a few things out to find an extra $10,000 a year, $100,000 every 10 years. Most Americans don't save $100,000 over 10 years. Everybody's supposed to save 10%, but they don't. You know, they don't. And and what if a person did that, put half of that money in cash and half of that money in silver, and was sitting on at least $100,000 then, 10 years from now, of money that doesn't exist? Just saying. Might be a good prep. Might be a good thing. Don't know. You know, especially with silver prices where they are, it'd be a good time to maybe pick some of that up. And should that is that what you should do? No, you should do what you want to do. But you should do it in a fully informed way. You should start questioning the authority that says you can't. There's people that go out and they live in an area where they're just going to do well. They put in 30 pecan trees. And it's 10, 12 years. But 10, 12 years from now, they're picking up buckets and buckets of pecans to sell for a dollar a pound on the side of the road. Make five, six, ten grand a year. Pecans, ten thousand bucks. No, yeah. Yeah, it happens. It takes more than 12 years for pecans to produce that heavily, but it happens. Or they find other things. To, but again, I just want you to think about, like, if you could just create an extra $10,000 a year, what would it mean to you? Well, this, you're, you're, Jack, you're talking about 60, 60 bucks this guy made, and you're, all of a sudden you're up at $10,000. Well, if you can make 60, you do what you did twice, you make 120. You do that twice, you're at 240. You do that twice, you know. You do that twice again, you're almost at a grand right there. So then you do that twice, and then that twice, and then that twice, and you're there. Or you find other things to do it. The point is you can make excuses or you can create results. I mean, that's, that's the reality of the world today. I mean, sometimes when I, when I have these discussions, I, I think, how messed up is the America where a guy like me has to be the person to tell people like things like this? And, and sometimes I often think, like, do you really need to be saying shit like this? Like, haven't people heard it enough or don't they know? And then I meet people in, 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 in person and they say, thank you. Thank you. Because what I've learned in, in many discussions with people is there's a lot of people that have grown up that are in their 40s now and younger, especially. Um, that when they tell me that what they'll say is there was never strong males around me that would just say shit the way that it was. It was either they were in a, a single mother household and there just were no males, or they had these mealy mouth, freaking politically correct ass clowns that don't know what it is to be a man and stand up and say what you think and, and, and believe what you say, and then actually take actions behind it. And, and it, it's here's another aside, but it's it's a truth. People are capable of so much more than they know, but often they need to see somebody do it, experience that, to give themselves permission to do it. 
When I was young and broke and just out of the Army and, and got off my little trail walk and came down here to Texas, I got a job. My first real job was working for a company called Home Interiors and Gifts. I made $6 an hour in a warehouse, killing myself in 120-degree heat in Texas summer in a warehouse. And uh, it wasn't exactly a great job. And I was packing these boxes. So they'd had these pickers that were like shoppers, basically. They would go pick an order. They'd bring it to a lady to check it out. It really looked like a grocery store, honestly. And But you had boxes, and you had to pack everything and fit it all together and seal them up and label them and set them. And then a guy came and put them on a truck. And we packed our asses off. And this is low-dollar items. And a, a, a good packer would pack about $9,000 in merchandise a day. And I packed about ten dollars to $11,000 worth of merchandise a day. And that was a big difference. So I went from temporary to full-time employee in 30 days in this place, and I wasn't exactly thrilled about it. Apparently a lot of other temporary employees quit that day because I got hired, and they had been there for four months trying to get hired. So working hard works. So that got me from $6 an hour to $7.40 an hour. But it was a raise, and I was moving in the right direction. I was looking for another job. And uh, But one day they bring this guy over named Nate. And Nate was like the packer that other packers looked at and went, how the hell does this guy do this? Nate would pack about sixteen dollars to $17,000 a day. So he comes over and he says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pack everything. All you're going to do is put the tape on the box, put the label on the box, stack the boxes, and get the guy to come put them on the truck. And he says, try to keep up. And even though I knew who this guy was, you know what I'm thinking? Yeah, this guy was a machine. This guy literally looked like a robot programmed to do this. And I struggled to keep up with him. And I was better than most. He did that for two hours. He went away. That was it. It was the only time he was over there. My numbers went up by an average of $1,500 a day from that one thing. Because I looked at what he did, and it gave me permission to do it a little differently and a little faster, be a little less fussy about it, and to just get it done. And it also said, hey, this is possible. And I think a lot of times, the things that we talk about here on the air, and we, we hear of other people doing it, and we go, well, I could do that. And that changes our lives for the better. John Dowie's an example. So John Dowie was way overweight, had all kinds of health problems, and heard on here about doctor's nutrition and primal and paleo and all that stuff and turned his life around. He looks great today. Still battling type 2 diabetes, but on his way to kicking that's ass too. Also here's on here, we have Luke Callahan on. Luke talks about microgreens. John says, well, I could do that. Yeah, so John, John's knocking down a full-time income growing microgreens in his freaking living room now. And quail and duck eggs. And I mean, literally paying his bills through those activities. That doesn't mean you should, but what that means is a, a person heard something, saw proof that someone else did it, looked at how they did it, and said, oh, that's not that hard. And I challenge you to start looking at things that you want to do, but you just think, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. Just look at how somebody else did it and try it. So what, what, what do you think? This is the thing. What do you think is going to happen if it fails? Now, if you're going to go spend $20,000 to try to do something and fail, okay, I get it, right? Or if what you're going to try to do is jump off a building and not die, and if you do it wrong, you're going to splat and die, okay, don't do that. But if you're going to think, like, I, I, I'd like to build one of these aviaries like Jack is, but I don't understand those angle cuts or whatever. You, you stick the board up there, you take a Sharpie marker, and you, you, you draw the line 
on the angle based on where you want it to fit. You cut it off with a circular saw. You bolt it on there and you slap it together. That's it. Right? And you'll figure out how to do it if you try. I, I did this old John Boat project. I'll, I have a video, I think, of it from years ago that I'll, I'll put out in the show notes today. And that, that John Boat was a wreck. And I did decking and, and carpeted the deck and glued the deck and, and mounted all these rod holders and everything. And that boat was crazy awesome when I was done with it. And I sat for six months thinking about redoing that boat, going, how would I do this? How would I do that? How would I do this? And then one day I'm like, this isn't me. This isn't what I do. And the real reason I was procrastinating is I was trying to convince myself to buy a new boat instead of redoing this one. And I started looking at new boats and how expensive they were and all the problems that came with them and went, there's really nothing wrong with this boat. What do I hate about it? I'm going to fix that. So I, next thing I know, I'm, I'm on my way to Home Depot buying marine-grade plywood and just start bolting shit together. And it came out better than I would have ever expected because I tried. It's February. It's February. It's February. 2016, TikTok. Get shit done, folks. Get shit done. Because if you ain't getting shit done, other people are. And they're either pulling ahead of you or pushing you backwards. Life's a bitch because she smacks you backwards if you are not going forwards. So get shit done, my friends. And don't envy people that are more successful than you because this just came in from Justin. And I'm not going to use it as a way to beat up on public education because it, it, it's too much of a one-off to do that with. But it does make a statement of reality. Observation for Jack. If schools prepare us for life, then the most prepared should be the ones who did the best, right? I just found out that four people from my graduation class, graduating class died since graduation. Two by natural causes, one by freak accident, and the only one to die by suicide was a valedictorian. Thought you might appreciate that observation. Well, first, when someone dies by their own hand, I, I feel remorse. I don't know who, I don't even know this person's name, but I, I feel sad that anybody would take their life, and I feel terrible for this person and for their family even without knowing them. So that, that's the first thing I want to say. But I, I do think it's an observation that what supposedly brings success often brings misery. I mean... How many times do you hear of some incredibly successful person either taking extremely self-destructive behaviors or actually killing themselves? Because with success, if it's not managed properly, becomes pressure. You know, and over the years, I've had to learn how, as this show's become successful, to not let it become pressuring, to always be a hundred percent, to always do better than, and because that's that's hard for me, right? Because That's me. I always want to do better. Because if I don't always do better, then I'm going to go in reverse. And you, if you ever s settle for, I don't have to do better, then, then that means you've gotten to good enough and the only place to go is down. But that doesn't mean that you stop striving to always be better. But you can actually give yourself permission once in a while, hey, that wasn't the best show I ever did. Or I didn't get that 100% right. Okay, fine. I messed up. Fine. I'm still going to keep going. But what happens is people get conditioned to believe That you can't mess up, you can't you can't fail, and like something bad is going to happen. That's why that's why all these young millennials get a job and they just sit there if they get to a stopping point. It's not that they're really lazy; they're not, not all of them anyway. They're afraid to mess up. They're afraid to screw up. They don't know what to do. The, the people that I said you you tell them to make soup, you give them a recipe. They don't have parsley, so they can't make the soup. They can't go. You know, I'll try it without parsley. See what happens. You know, this is what's holding America back, this fear. And what happens is they're, they're by. 
the, those of us who succeed at the highest levels are more likely to end up with the highest degree of misery if we don't figure this out. Survival podcast. Let me tell you something. If you kill yourself, you failed the first rule of survival. Wake up the next day. This is a survival topic, folks. There are more, ch I call them children. When I say children, I mean 30 down to actual little kids killing themselves in America today than any time in our history. Why? Why? One of my very best friends named Brian had a son that I watched grow up. I remember Clinton when he was little. I mean way little, like almost as young as my grandson is today. 21, 22 years old. He hung himself in his bedroom with a belt. And when I, I heard about this, I, I couldn't believe it. And my friend told me, he said, we don't know what happened. All we know is there was a note. He didn't really leave it like a suicide note, but like a note he had written a few days before it happened. It basically said he never thought he was going to be successful. And that's the only thing we know that would cause this. He wasn't doing drugs. He was a young guy who drank, but he didn't drink himself stupid or anything like that. Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense unless we ask ourselves, are we really preparing kids and children for the lives that they're meant to live? Or are we preparing them for what we think success is? And are we creating a success that not only is unrealistic, but is an outdated model of what success is? Think about that as I go into our next topic here, because a very interesting quote from the blog. This comment was on our blog today. Uh, from Texas Mom. It was in response to the show I did with John Pugliano last week. And uh, it's a different take on this than I was really expecting. And Texas Mom always has great comments. But this one kind of makes me think even, I think, like, so we put out something and it made her think in a way that was, you know, somewhat in a different direction. And now I'm taking that in another third direction still. My youngest grandson just turned one. We realized how many new things he takes for granted. He keeps touching our TV screen and gets frustrated because the buttons don't work. He expects everything to have a touch screen. His dad has a 3D printer, and so does one of his uncles. His dad has some little robots that he loves to play with. He picks up cell phones and touches them uh, to things, trying to get objects to sync with the phone, because that's how you're able to drive robots through your phone. He expects to be able to control everything through a phone. That's his normal. Well, let me tell you something. That's going to be everybody's normal. So this kid's not wrong. Normal is having uh, quadcopters flying through the house. Normal is his siblings have to have school at home. His older brother, nine, makes things out of snap circuits and is learning to program. Flew to Paris with his dad to help present at a programming conference. At age one, he still expects all phones to have video chat. Anytime one of his parents is out of town, they will video chat. I was watching him one night, and he grabbed my phone, wanting me to call his parents. But my phone was defective. He wanted video. His three-year-old sister wanted to watch TV and purchased a movie she wanted to watch on Amazon and played it. Parents learned to put a lock on that, but they do, the most, they do most of their shopping online. Again, another normal for him. He loves to dance to music streamed or stored on his phone and played through a Bluetooth speaker. He also loves cars, toy trains, balls, and playing outside. And even if he thinks his grandma's electronics are lame, he sure enjoys browsing my garden with his siblings. When his dad was growing up, having a Commodore computer was a new thing. <laughs> God, that dates me, huh? Uh, that was my first computer, Commodore 64. Our telephone still had a cord, yeah, 
When I was younger, uh, and my dad was in Vietnam, the only way we heard from him was an occasional letter on very thin paper or reel-to-reel tape. Things have changed much. It will be interesting to see how up his upbringing will prepare him for this changing world. This is the best answer. Uh, so that's it. Okay. Um, so first I'd like to talk about how fast technology really has moved before I kind of dig into what I think this says about how we're not properly educating children in America today and kind of tie it back into the last segment. But just to drive this home, in 1992, I was stationed in Honduras and not at a proper military base. I lived in a tent for six months. I talked about that last week. And we were in the middle of nowhere. And we did have some pretty big generators, and every tent had a light bulb in it. And actually, we had two light bulbs per tent. We were pretty spoiled. And there was, you know, a TV tent and stuff like that with a satellite dish and all. But we were there for six months. We could not call anyone most of the time. Three times, they brought a special comm team in that set up satellite link. And so three times over six months, once every two months, you got in line to make a phone call to somebody. And I remember talking to my dad. And the first thing you had to tell him is, hey, dad, this is me. Don't try talking just yet. This is on a satellite and there's a long delay so that we can communicate. When you're done, you need to say the word over like it's a radio. Does that make sense? Over. And you'd wait. And about five seconds later, ten seconds later sometimes, you'd hear him start talking back. And he'd say his thing, yeah, I get it, over. Well, I just want to know what's going on. We're still here in Honduras, blah, 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 over. This is how we made comms calls in the middle of nowhere in 1992. Soldiers in Afghanistan today in these remote outposts are using Skype and emails and all types of things. That should start to drive this home. Now, What I was saying in this, this last piece is that not only are we not preparing people for success that's realistic, we're setting these expectations that are unrealistic, we're setting goals of success that no longer really are successful. Like being able to write cursive or whatever, people are debating whether they should take that out of school. Like That doesn't have any impact on your success in life at all anymore. If you want to learn how to do it, that's fine. Some people like calligraphy too. Okay, And I'm not saying we shouldn't teach writing. Handwriting. I'm just saying that, you know, is that really indicative? Like, if you learn to print or you learn cursive, one or the other, are you really inhibited from using what that skill is generally used for? Leaving a note for somebody else? Yeah, you kind of want to know both of them if that's going to happen. But almost everybody can read print. So if we stop teaching cursive, would it really impact anybody's potential for success anymore? And, and can't people decide whether that's a skill they want or not? Just like people decide whether they want the skill of knife sharpening or not. Some people can, some people can't. Some people are good, some people are bad, some people are great. Do we need to judge somebody's penmanship with a grade in school anymore? Is it really an indicative thing of success? Now think about Texas mom's comments. This older sibling, nine years old, is, is putting snap circuits together in programming because he's homeschooled. Think about how inept our education system really is in preparing people for success tomorrow. we are, And this is why, and I talked to my wife about this this morning, and she agreed with me. I said, you know, the ability to take those leaps forward and learn fast exists at the highest level for a child between the ages of about four to five and about 25. 
It's at that point, if we don't screw them up, kids are freaking fearless. That's why they learn how computers work so fast. You put a 40-year-old in front of a computer application that they've never used before, and they're like, eh, I'm not sure. They're afraid if I touch them, I'll break it. I can't get back. Whatever. But a kid just starts just slamming it until they figure it out, and they learn it like that. We're taking kids during that time when they should be putting snap circuits together, learning how to fly quadcopters and program, or learning how to, to, to design gardens, or learning how to do whatever it is they really want to do, when they have the greatest capacity to learn at the highest rate possible, and we're having them learn and regurgitate things like who did what to whom in 1639. But Jack, you love history. I love history. I don't love memorizing facts about history and then parroting them back and taking a test. And if you give the average student a test that they got an A on two years ago, they couldn't pass it today. I don't think that makes sense. I don't think that's developing the highest potential of the human mind. Just another way to look at this. And why I think this kid's normal is the new normal. It just hasn't gotten to everybody yet. Because you can't tell me if you're in your 40s like me. That when somebody brings something new to you that's going to take a little bit of work to do, if you're not really, really wanting it, you don't just think, I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't have time for this crap. right? Or maybe oh, this seems interesting, and then you look at it, you go, it's like 27 steps to do it. You're like, I, I got other shit to do. I, I don't have time for this. Like The way I do it works, so get away from me. right? When you're 20, if you have the time, you're like, oh, I'll learn how to do this. And you learn it like that. We're robbing our youth of the greatest potential time of learning that they'll ever have. That's just how I kind of feel on this one. You know, today uh, I want to finish up with a, a different song like I always do. And I play a lot of music for you guys that's older music. My wife and I were listening to music last night. We were listening to basically 70s rock music and, and saying that, you know, uh, rock music hit its pinnacle from about 68 to 84. And it just has never been as good as it was during that time. And, 80s pop came in and screwed it all up. And country music kind of took over and, and, and went through its pinnacle run from the 70s and, and late 70s, early and into the 90s and then turned pop and, and kind of blew it. But there's still good music out there. And this song's actually not that old. And it's by a, a, kind of a newer you know group called Three Doors Down. I guess when I call them newer, that shows you how dated I am. But to me, they're a newer band. And... Uh, It's a song that I think has never really gotten the credit that it deserves for being as good of a song as it is because it was used by Geico in a commercial with the caveman. And it's, uh, of course, Let Me Be Myself. And I think this is actually a great song in, in just the lyrics alone because it's what everybody in life really wants, but there are only a few people that have the courage to, instead of asking for it, do it. And that's the theme that today's show came up with. It wasn't really planned that way, but it just did. So that's what I want to leave you with. And listen to this song and ask yourself if you've ever felt this way. And then ask yourself if maybe you'd be better off if you just decided you were going to be. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times got tough or even if they don't. I guess I just got lost Being someone else I tried to kill the pain Nothing ever helped I left myself behind Somewhere along the way Hoping to come back around To find my
Please, will you one time? 